Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Artistry. There's so much meaning tucked away behind that word. Drilling it down to musical and lyrical virtuosity does little to lessen the difficulty in truly defining all that it encapsulates. Take the challenge in social risks it requires to lyrically create and express oneself to others through the creation of something audibly new and previously unheard. Consider the hustle and time it takes to actually make and produce music. Add in the efforts of getting it in front of people, and I mean a lot of people, in order to fuel an existence or career, and ponder the challenge of attempting to grow and expand as an artist, but also being pegged and constantly recognized for past sounds and work contemplate the mixing of art and business and what that could mean. You see, this concept of musical artistry means ever so much, and quite frankly, it's utterly compelling to consider in all that it elicits. On today's show, I could not think of a better guest to help us unpack some of what this musical artistry imagery represents by way of exploring his own illustrious career. Dan Mankin is a two-time Juno Award-winning and two-time Polaris Music Prize-listed musician and songwriter from British Columbia, Canada. He's toured extensively throughout North America, Europe, and Australia, having released five studio LPs and numerous EPs and singles. His repertoire also includes scoring for feature film, as well as television for Netflix and AMC. Dan is also co-founder of Side Door, a marketplace platform connecting artists with alternative venue spaces for in-person and online shows. And all of this was set in motion way back in 2003, when at 20 years old, Dan debuted his first set of recordings, an EP of acoustic songs called All at Once. Through Dan's grit and determination of exposing others to his musical prowess, this album was eventually picked up in 2007 and re-released by a label, paving the way for bigger things to come. In 2009, Dan's second album, Nice Nice, Very Nice, was recorded and released. It garnered further support and fandom by way of airtime on radio and satellite radio stations. Later in that year, with momentum built and talent recognized by both fans and those within the industry, things began to really take off. Megan was awarded Artist of the Year at the Verge Music Awards. In 2010, Nice Nice, Very Nice was licensed and released by Toronto-based independent record label Arts and Crafts in the United States and Europe. The album was shortlisted for the Polaris Music Prize while also being awarded iTunes Album of the Year for the singer-songwriter category. And not only that, it won three Western Canadian Music Awards for Independent Album of the Year, Root Solo Album of the Year, and Songwriter of the Year. The song Robots was named Best Song by the CBC Radio 3 Bucky Awards. This was followed up by a third album in 2011, Oh Fortune, which received extensive critical acclaim internationally and demonstrated the beginning of a new, more experimental era in Mangan's musical career. In 2012, off the back of this album, Dan won Canada's highest musical honor with Juno Awards for New Artist of the Year and Alternative Album of the Year. Several other awards and nominations followed. In 2015, four years after O'Fortune, Dan released Club Meds, 
which was met with wildly positive critical reception, but a less overall popular one than his previous album. Still, it was widely respected, with one blogger writing, Club Meds is a unified whole, tackling some of the most important problems in our collective lives. It is not simply the best album of 2015, but one of the most emotionally compelling albums of the last decade. In 2016, Unmake, his fourth album, a collection of four home-recorded songs, was digitally released. And in the fall of 2018, Mangan released his fifth full-length, more or less, and about that album as a whole, Megan notes that it was about witnessing birth, and in some ways, rebirth. It's about feeling disconnected from a popular identity and becoming acclimated to a new one. It's about raising kids in a turbulent world. It's about unanswerable questions and kindness and friendship and fear. The man known as the nicest guy on the Vancouver music scene has continued to deliver lyrically meaningful sentiment to fans the world over, and will be setting off on a Canada-wide tour this summer, followed by a European leg this fall. So with all of that stated, Dan, it's an absolute thrill to welcome you to the show. Hi, nice. That's quite quite an introduction. Thank you. I, yeah, yeah. I think we're done. I think uh, I've just used up <laughs> the complete time allotment for the podcast. It was great to have you on. But uh... <laughs> when, you, when you put it all back to back like that, it sounds sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it does. I would say so too. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking like in the context of what we're going to be talking about today, I just thought it would be that complete picture that's going to hopefully sort of allow listeners to really dive into all of it. So yeah, I know it can be oh. mildly uncomfortable for people to hear and sit <laughs> for five minutes and listen to all this praise and all these wonderful things that they've accomplished. But uh, yeah, you did a great job. In that the, the funny thing is that, you know, life, just the way it is, it all of those, all, all of the things that you've done, it's like they're old photographs of you, you know? And, and then when you look at those photographs, there's a part of you that's always like, oh, what a sweet young kid I was, you know? And then there's a part of you that's like, what was with that eyebrow piercing, you know? And um, <laughs> so it's the same thing when you look back on all these memories of your life, things that you've done, uh, in a sense, it feels like a lifetime ago. And, you know, and also it's sort of like these, these old versions of you and the, the beautiful thing about getting older is that you get to reflect on all these different eras of your life and then hopefully glean a little bit of wisdom from each one. That's exactly it. And that's exactly what I'm hoping to kind of get into today. And yeah, I hope it sort of sets the tone and uh, allow us to kind of explore all of that. So mm -hmm. why don't we? This first segment here is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And basically, it's a segment where I just sort of read off a definition of the guest profession as defined by Wikipedia. And I like to do it for a couple of reasons. I mean, it brings everybody up to speed on what the profession is all about. But then also too, I mean, I think everyone, once they get into some line of work, they begin to own it. They put their own stamp on it and what it means to them on so many different levels. So it's, it's, it's a nice point to sort of jump into all of this, I would say. So of course I do have you here for musician, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Let me read that off for you as defined by Wikipedia. And uh, yeah, and just consider what, uh, what it means to you. And then I'll have some questions for you after. Sure. Okay. Musician. A musician is a person who composes, conducts, or performs music. According to the United States Employment Service, musician is a general term used to designate one who follows music as a profession. Musicians include songwriters who compose music, as well as write lyrics for songs, conductors who direct a musical performance, or performers who perform for an audience. Musicians specialize in a musical style, and some musicians play in a variety of different styles, depending on cultures and background. So it's pretty general. It's pretty, you know, vague in that, a sense. But uh, yeah, what I do thought, you think? I thought you were going to say a musician is someone who uh, 
creates a, a digital content and begs people to listen to their music. <laughs> I think that should be updated in Wikipedia. <clears throat> I do yeah. think so. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny. I mean, it, when you take like a very, like a sort of like literal take of the word. Sure. I, I to be honest, like I, I'm not a very like well-educated musician. I mean, I've spent many years of my life playing music and there's sort of like an internal clock an internal understanding of what feels good, but I, I often don't even know what chords I'm playing on the guitar. And right. like, I, I can't read music. I've scored feature films with Hollywood yes. stars in them, but I, I, I can't even, I, I know how to produce music. I know how to play music. I know how to record music. Yeah. I know how to mix music. And yet through it all, I still kind of wince when I refer to myself as a musician, because I feel mm. like a bit of an imposter. I feel you know, I feel quite confident as a songwriter and I feel quite confident as like a performer, entertainer. Right. But I've always felt squeamish about what my hands can do on a fretboard. Really? And, uh, you know, as such, I've, I've surrounded myself always with just incredible people who I refer to as musicians, right. you know? Right. Um, so it's, it's sort of like I, I, it's my name on the ticket, but I, I've always tried to always tried to be the worst musician on stage essentially um and that's that's really worked out for me yeah yeah it sure has it's interesting when you said that i i was struck by the thought that I, you know i kind of took the opposite sort of tact on that whereas like things just sort of naturally are coming to you you know obviously like what you've accomplished just kind of speaks to that point but you know my definition at least my perception of a musician would be somebody like that who maybe might not necessarily know the chord that they're playing, but it's just flowing through them. And it's just, it's coming right. sort of naturally. And if, if anything, like that is the truest sense of what a musician would be. Yeah. Well, and, again, and, and from I think an that the, perspective. Yeah. I, th I think that the very, very finest musicians, and when you say that, I mean like people who pick up instruments and play music are the ones who have spent years studying the theory and then can throw that all out the window and can just improvise and just sort right. of like, um, you know, get unconscious, if you will, like, yeah. you know, get, get into that flow state where the muscle memory is so dense and so like true that they can just sort of let go. And I, and I've spent time around people like that and it is mind blogging, like how, how talented and how pure some people are as, as musicians. And it, I think that in music or, or like in acting or like in any kind of like perform of performative art, I think what you're getting at is like getting into that flow state, that sort of unconscious, uh, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Um, and that is partially about music. And that's partially about like doing the hard work, the internal emotional work, trying to be a sort of like vessel for, for, for the moment, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And that takes time. That really takes time. I think people, I can speak for myself. I spent a long time as a kid or even as a young adult, like emulating my heroes mm -hmm. and trying to act and be like the people that I thought were, were cool. And, and there's a, there was like a moment or sort of like a, a period by which I started to find my voice and, you know, like there's only, so many notes in a scale and there's only so many song melodies that, yeah. that apply, you know, human ear likes. And so it's not about like finding a new thing to do in music so much as like finding your angle or your take or your voice on it. And that took 
hundreds of shows, like honestly, hundreds of gigs. And then even then, you know, when things were working, uh, I, I can picture back to like maybe 10 years ago, things were really cooking and we were playing like 150 or 200 shows a year and we were getting invited to play all over the world. And we were all of a sudden we were on the main stage or sometimes headlining festivals and we were selling out big theaters. And in some sense that feels like an arrival. But when I look back on that time, I felt like it was the very early stages of a deeper education, uh, which was what it means to actually listen. And like I spent the first 10 years on, on stage thinking that I was the leader of the band because, you know, I'm singing my songs. And so I would be leading the band with my hand and my, you know, strumming. And, and then there came this like great epiphany of realizing that the best thing you can do is just listen and let your body react to what's around you. And then you can sort of traverse into that cool, ethereal, otherworldly, like spiritual place. Um, and, and you have to let go of you. You have to, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's, it's like if you're solid enough in your muscle memory, you exit the building yeah. and your ego does, your, your mind does, and you can just be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of kind of looking at it all. And uh, yeah, I've got like a million of ideas just swirling around right now up top because <laughs> it, it triggers a lot of different thoughts and feelings on that. And it's uh, yeah. I, I, as you sort of like explain it, I can see that meaning, but it's something that I never you know, wouldn't necessarily considered off the top, you know, it's really, uh, yeah. yeah when you, and it, it just it takes time and it takes practice, right? Like, um, I, I remember seeing in an interview, someone in, asked, saying to Leonard Cohen, I mean, it must be nice to be Leonard Cohen. You just wake up and write hallelujah or whatever, you know? And, and his response was essentially like, you have no idea. Like I've spent the last 30 years of my life. We spending every single moment trying to be better at writing and um you know it, it's not about uh, i mean luck sure like like luck plays into the career you know luck plays mm -hmm. into i'm like a middle class white guy from canada who grew up with supportive parents who bought him a guitar that's luck you know i subsidized education that's luck i yeah. had a lot of support I've, there's so much luck involved in my career but the the other stuff like the other like and not getting complacent and staying hungry mm -hmm. uh, to be better i mean and honestly like i'm 39 i'm about to put out my sixth uh, album full-length album and i feel like i'm at the top of my game i feel like i've never written better songs never written better lyrics and uh it's a lot of that has to do with just never because i think the second you feel like you you're great yeah. The second you feel like you're really good and you know how to do this is when you're you start getting, sliding. Yeah. You're, you're sliding, sliding back down. Yeah. And so I really am hard on myself in what I hope is not a detrimental way to mm -hmm. my psyche, but um, I'm hard on myself to always want to be better at this. Yeah. And um, cause, cause when you do get lucky and things start to go your way and people start giving you the benefit of the doubt and you start getting booked at things, it's easy to sort of feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm on top of the world and you right. can take it for granted. And I, I remember in the early days of my career, I was at the, the railway club uh, here in Vancouver and I saw someone perform who was the lead singer of a band that in the nineties was playing to like 5,000 or more people a night, you know, a mm -hmm. big can rock sort of band that I could 
name and you would, you would know the name. And I remember seeing them play at the railway club for like 20 or 30 people and thinking, oh yeah, this guy hasn't put out music in like 10, 15 years. Uh, and uh, he just stopped and thinking when you stop, like it's done. And all like all of this infrastructure that you build fan base relationships in the industry, yeah. like it can go away. And, 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 it's it's easy to feel like it will last forever, mm. and it's, the second you get into that mentality where you take it for granted, yeah. uh, you'd be amazed how quickly the phone can stop ringing. You know, yeah, yeah. And well, you you, you to... yourself had uh, had a gap of what four, three, four years or so in between albums at one point, and yeah. uh, curious. I mean, during that that time, did you start to experience, or were you noticing even? Oh yeah, no, I, I've I've experienced that big time. I mean, I had a real surge in the sort of early, in the late aughts and the early teens of this century. And it was very, very busy. And there was this sort of like anthemic folk pop revival thing going on where there's like bands like the Mumford and Sons and Lumineers and you know, Monsters and Men were sort of filling arenas and in some case stadiums. And and I, I think uh, even though I sort of preceded a lot of those bands, Nice, Nice, Very Nice came out before any of those bands had ever put out a record that they were so much more popular than I was that I was sort of like, in a sense, riding this wave of their popularity. And then it, you know, the world very quickly and probably rightfully so said, okay, we're bored of white guys with guitars, you know? And, um, and I sort of went away. I, I, I had kids. I said to my team, Hey guys, I want to take like a year or two off touring and I'm just going to focus on being a dad. And they were like, okay, that's cool. And I did some film score stuff and I, you know, I, I sort of, divvied up diversified my plate yeah. in, in some ways um and i remember the phone call where i was like okay guys like i know i turned the tap off but time to turn it back on let's go let's let i'm rip roaring and they were sort of like uh okay um <laughs> kind of got to start from scratch here really um, and you know it wasn't completely from scratch of course but but still it was yeah. it, it was amazing how like when you stop answering the phone and you sort of get I don't want to say cocky, but sort of just like complacent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you stop answering the phone. It's the same thing, actually, when you have kids. Yeah. Um, uh, and you have, you have kids. I do, um, yes. So. And so when you have your first kid, there's about a six-month window where you still receive text messages from your pals saying, hey, want to grab yeah. a beer? Yeah. And yeah. in your previous life, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll meet you in like 20 minutes. Yeah. But once you have kids, like the idea of a Yeah, I'll meet you in two weeks. Yeah, like oh, I think I have a, a break in my schedule. You know, in like five years, let me know that. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so eventually, those text messages stop showing up, right? Like yeah. people stop, and they yeah, just know that yeah, you can't. That's do a nice it. metaphor, yeah. And in the same way, I metaphorically stopped answering the phone mm-hmm. for for any opportunities that were coming my way because yeah. I was just like, I'm, I want a break. That was too much. It was too intense. I, I want to spend time with my yeah. kids. And then, phone kind of stopped ringing, and I. I can't tell you how much work went into like trying to like get that, back, you know, that, that motor on. moving again. Yeah. Um, and then we made club meds in 2015 and I thought that that record was going to change the world. I was like, this is the best record ever. As soon as people hear this, they're going to they're gonna blow their minds. And it got like a, a real lackluster response and yeah. it crushed me. Like I, yeah. I was devastated and, um, had, you know, th- that year was just a really, really tough year. And so basically there was like four years, four or five years. And I feel like by the time more or less came out in 2018, 
I had recaptured my mojo. Like it was yes. sort of like there was a there was an inertia moving forward again. For, uh, but it took like four took time though to, which is interesting because off the top of my career from twenty two thousand five to two thousand nine, there was four years there where I was yeah. grinding and scraping yeah. and, and probably um, I, I mean had to do it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always tough to be objective when you're in the moment. But when you're kind of looking back on it, like we are right now, you can kind of pick up on some of these points and, and look at it from different angles, I suppose. And I would, I would guess, again, this is just speaking off the cuff here, but I would guess that those types of experiences, like early success, extreme success, if you will, and then having this lull in the middle where you start to sort of like question maybe some of your ideals, your values, what you're doing, has probably fueled a lot of you know, the resurgence right now and heading into your sixth album. Yeah, that, that, that sort of perspective. Yeah. What would you think I, about I, that? I think it forces you to ask about ask yourself what you really want. Yeah. You know, and when you're riding a wave, you're not really like too concerned about what direction the wave's going in. You're just yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, and so when you're sort of like treading water in, in placid, you know, pools, you can kind of figure out what it is that you want. And I, you know, I came to a few realizations. One was that I was far too concerned on the affirmation that I was getting or not getting from yeah. the scene, you know, like I was like desperate to get written up in pitchfork or whatever and, right. and realizing just, you know, how I was basically choosing to be beholden to this zeitgeist of fashion and cool and yeah. how ridiculous that is, you know, like how, how insane that is and how unhealthy that is to sort of base your self-worth off of, whether or not these cool kids are letting you into their club and that, you know, kind of coming to the realization that the music industry is, it's just a popularity contest. It's um, so fickle. And yeah, it's so fickle. It's, it's like, it's basically in, in pitchfork and all these buzz blogs and stuff like that. I mean, they're just pop culture blogs. They're, they're fashion blogs that are sort of masquerading as music or journalism. And uh, I don't even say that pejoratively. I think that they would probably agree. And, um, and so you know, coming to that conclusion, I started to feel like, okay, well, when I'm young, I wanted to be cool. And now that I'm a dad and I'm in my thirties and I know that inherently I'm not cool, uh, or at least I'm not cool in the youthful way that I once was, what is it that I want? And so I kind of envisioned chasing cool is like trying to climb a ladder that's made out of fog. Like every rung feels unsure. And unfortunate thing with that is that let's say you do convince the world that you're cool and then people start treating you like you're really cool and they come to your concerts and they think you're really cool. At some point when you're not feeling very cool, you're going to look out at the sea of people who think that you're amazing and you're going to go, you people are idiots. Like you're going to resent your yeah. crowd yeah, for being so dumb that you, that you could have fooled them. Right. right. Um, and that's like a totally scary situation yeah, uh, yeah that's how you end up like you know in the doing heroin in the janitor's closet at Wembley Stadium or something like that you know <laughs> um so it's 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 dangerous and it's so relative and what one person thinks is cool another person thinks is I find sorry to interrupt I find I mean within age categories I'm around that age as well right now and I find like that's one of the best things about sort of approaching this this segment of your life now is that you start to get this perspective and you start to understand these things and you just quite frankly just give less of a shit about it really to, to put it yeah. bluntly like at times I mean there's moments here and there of course maybe but overall you start to like just detach from it a little bit and then once you do I think that's where like 
I guess, speaking of fans or people around you pick up on that and there's sincerity and there's a sort of a genuine yeah. side there that, that begins to take on its own sort of, I don't or know. You, or you give a shit about slightly different things. You know, like I, I think for me, <clears throat> the thing that I started to give a shit about more was, am I, like, I know, like if you're at a party and you're kind of like acting the part or something like that, I mean, you know, internally, if you're being authentic or not, yeah. like if you're being honest and in art, that on off switch is is crazy like you know when you're when you're doing it and when you're in it and when it's all being real and honest and you know when you're not and when it feels phony or like you're being performative in in a kind of gross way or something like that and so for me that became the north star like it was no longer about the perception of being involved in this cool scene it was like is what i'm doing nuanced is it relevant is it unlocking hidden truths about existence? Is it connective? Is it an invitation for other people to commiserate with me cosmically about existing? Because if that was the question, I could honestly say with every song, with every delivery of every lyric, yes or no, Is am, am I doing this right? And so then it, it, it was a much more tangible goal. And then the other thing is, I mean, I think part of it is becoming apparent, but people joke about dad jokes, right? Being this like terrible low form of uh, humor. And I will argue to my death that the dad joke is one of the purest forms of humor because it is at nobody's expense. It is real. And if it is at anybody's expense, it is at the self. It is at the dad. And it's saying, hey, guys, I know this joke is dumb, but I'm going to say it uh, to provide a moment of levity in this godforsaken hellhole. And... If anyone's taking a dish on this, it's me. And I will take a hit for the team by saying yes. the dumb joke. And all of the groans and all the eye rolling and everything like that, it's all undertoned with like a sense of like, this is a safe, like being inside a dad joke, that's a safe space. That's like a place where you can feel comfortable. It's pure. Um, it's pure. It's, 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 it's benevolent. Like dad jokes mm -hmm. are inherently benevolent. It's like the dad... Or the mom looking back in the car at the kids and saying something silly that we can all kind of chuckle at. And it's a momentary, it's a piece of levity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I can't stand humor that is at someone else's expense. Like I, I just like the adding unkindness to the, to the world. It means nothing to me. I just can't, I won't, I won't engage with that. And so in the same way that I love the purity of feeling connected to an audience in a very honest way, I love the purity of, of um, trying to alleviate existential dread in every form for everyone around you all the time and in doing so in little tiny little ripples. And it's not altruistic. It's totally selfish. The more that you can help other people in their existential journey, the more it helps yourself. And the more you can be kind to other people, the happier you feel. This is not me doing this for other people. I'm doing it for myself. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's I, sort of like these, this is motion of behavior and action almost. Totally. Yeah. And you, yeah. you set off the top. I mean, I have a reputation for being a nice guy. Yeah. It's not, it, it's self-serving. It's for me. Like I'm, I'm, it, it helps me with my own anxieties to be kind uh, and to be friendly. I, I like people most, you know, I'd say I, I hate humanity, but I love people, you know, um, <laughs> So well, there, there was something actually, too, I, I heard you mention in a previous interview, and you were asked about what defined you as an artist. And you noted, first and foremost, that it was about being a good person. 
And second comes this notion of image that you might want to build and attach to an identity eventually. But again, first and foremost, it starts with just being a good person. I well, yeah, like, I think that speaks uh, to this hierarchy of needs, right? Like at the yeah. top of the pyramid, I, before you can put husband or dad or musician or songwriter or whatever, you, for me, anyway, I have to put yeah. good human being. And the reason being is that all of those other labels can sort of be stripped from you in a way, like they are things that you apply to yourself, but that the core of you needs to be stable. It's sort of like the, um, like that cheesy adage about like, how can you be in love with someone else if you're not in love with yourself all first? Or, you know, how can you partner with somebody if you're not feeling complete on your own kind of thing? Right. And it's like, and unless I am secure and solid as an individual, how can I then apply that strength to being a yeah. dad or being a husband? Yeah, or there's or a lot of, truism, of things. truisms in there, I would say. Mm. And, and that's why also like, you can't feel guilty for mental health breaks. You know what I mean? Like no. if, uh, if, if, if you or your wife is like, you know what, I need to go get a massage or I'm going to kill someone or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like you have to be able to take the things that you need to write your head. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And just, yeah, the general awareness of, of those around you, you know, having those issues at times. We had a guest on this program all right in the early days. There was one thing that sort of struck me from that conversation and stays with me now. And it was just like a, a powerful thing where I was just like, you know, asking how somebody's doing. You know, just mm. a simple sort of check in with somebody can just go a long ways. And that sort of feeds into this idea of, you know, one, just being a good person and then two, looking out for people around you, too. Yeah. So, yeah, most definitely. And I think none of us know truly like the impact that we've had on other people. You know, like there's probably something that you said off the cuff to some kid when you were 14. Oh, yeah. You've completely forgotten about that moment, but they'll never forget it. And it was like a, you know, it made them feel welcomed or something like that you know yeah yeah no doubt returning to the music right now a little bit and this is a question I've always sort of like pondered over you know for somebody like yourself who has you know by all definitions by all accounts made it and I'm finger quoting here a little bit but uh this evolution of being an artist who has you know gained respect of people within the industry and, and elsewhere and you know fans that are engaged so on and so forth I'm curious about what it's like for you now when you're going in and you're playing these shows and people obviously like they, they want to hear the song some of the older ones probably at times right you know which is great I mean it's the ultimate compliment but then also too that you have this dynamic at play where you yourself are creative by definition you're you're looking to push boundaries you're looking to, to mm. do new things and what is it like having that that push and pull sort of dynamic between like trying to please, you know, you you, you want to keep people happy, but then also <laughs> the same sense yeah. you want to be pushing out yourself. And I've always sort of wondered this and you always, you, you hear artists speak to this, but it's an incredibly personal sort of, you know, feeling and sentiment towards it. And I'd love to hear what you've got to say on that. Like, how do you, well, how do you manage I mean, that? Yeah. I mean, I've never made the same record twice, right? Like if you listen to my catalog back yeah. to back, it's, oh, I know, it's, yeah. a, it's a windy road, you know? Yeah. And that's intentional. It's because I, I don't know if I just get bored easily or I, I, you know, I just feel like I need to keep trying new things. And I, I think that professionally, like from like a purely statistics standpoint with every record, but maybe one, I have gained more people than I've lost, mm. you know, if, if that makes mm. sense, it's always yeah, been like yeah. a net win. And even with the one that was like a bit of a, you know, uh, a dud as far as the industry goes, 
didn't get on the radio as much and sort of, you know, didn't sell as many tickets and all that stuff. Even that one to me was a net win because I finally was able to articulate some things on that record that mm. I'd probably been trying to for a decade. So on, the, on a personal side, it was, it still was a win. And I, th I think that, I think it was um, Jim Carrey once had a great quote about how you can lose both ways. Like if you, if you do something that is not for yourself, but uh, like you're aiming for something that you think other people would like, mm. you try and create something to, to fill a gap in the market or something, or, or to try and match a trend. And what happens then is if it's successful and it works, now you've set yourself on a trajectory that is in like not honest or, or, or not, you know, it's not where you want to be. And then you begrudge that success and you look out at the audience and you think, oh, you fools, why do you like this? You're garbage? resenting them, yeah. You're resenting it. Or you fail and it doesn't work and nobody likes it because you got it wrong and you hate it. And, you know, when you look at it that way, what's the risk of just sticking to your guns and being yeah. creative and trying to do something innovative and weird. And it's like really in the long term, like in the existential sense, there's a much bigger risk playing it safe yeah. than there is to actually be bold. Because if you do play it safe, you might live a, a, a life of like resentful boredom. And that to me is a, a far graver danger than, uh, you know, trying to pull I, and I, I, it happens with every single record that I make I'll, I'll deliver something to my team and it's happened with this new one this what you know this new album that is we haven't announced yet but you know I, I gave this record to the team and I said guys this is the best thing I've ever done you, you know just wait this is gonna knock your socks off and in general the response was like oh okay yeah well um whew, uh, we're not quite sure what to make of this you know <laughs> um and, uh, you know, they've, they've come around, they're, they're supportive, they're excited. But in a way, like what people, especially people whose like financial well-being is tied to yeah. your success, they would love for you to repeat something that was successful in the past. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a, like there's a, a formula there's, to it. Right? There's, yeah. There's like a road, there's like a path that's already blazed, you know? Yeah. But the thing is, is that that success was based in a zeitgeist that was years ago. It's and, contextual, right? It's totally contextual. That, the time that moment a place, is over. a moment. Yeah. And so maybe you would grab some of those old people that loved what you did then, but you might not gain like a whole new ground, you know? And so I, I am terribly excited with the challenging the listener and saying, okay, guys, you loved nice, nice, very nice and robots and the sort of like early career folky stuff. Give this a try. Like if, if you trusted me then, trust me now, trust in your old pal, Dan, you know, shucks, come along with this ride for me, uh, with me and listen to this a few times. If it doesn't grab you, that's fine. But I think for the people who it grabs, I mean, what a, what a bummer to be thought of as like a legacy act. You know what I mean? Like, like to feel like your best days are behind you or that like you can't continue growing. That's awful. I mean, and, and I look to people like Nick Cave or something who 
I don't even know how old he is. He must be pushing 60, but like, you know, he's still redefining what he does. Every record, every tour, every, you know, weird sort of like uh, art installation tour that he does or whatever is a little different than the ones before. And he keeps reinventing and he, he's, he's an artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's quite cliche to say, but, it, but it's so true. I mean, like if you're not growing, you're dying from within, you know? Totally. I mean, I, I, I watched my grandparents retire and they basically sat and read books and watched TV for like, you know, 15, 20 years and then they died. And uh, that sucks. Like, you know, I, I, I just don't, and maybe this is like a, you know, a product of sort of like modern day millennial, whatever, but like, I just can't imagine retiring. It sounds boring. Like yeah, yeah. The, the thing that makes me want to get up is I got shit to do. I got things that yeah, I want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, that's totally it. And it's, it's interesting that you say that because I mean, you know, we're on the sort of existential sort of like slant right now. And me, myself being based here within Japan, I've been here for about 20 years and you know, it's incredibly interesting place to be based. I mean, there's so many things every day is a new learning experience, like every single day. And I'm not even exaggerating there. There's always something I'm picking up, but these observations along the way, you know, being from Canada, being from a Western culture and Japanese, it's well-known. I mean, their longevity is the highest in the world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are always trying to figure out what that is. And some of the things that have been written about and some of the things I've witnessed firsthand is, is this point of, they have a drive. Like there, there, there isn't this notion of like retiring and just what you said, just mm -hmm. sitting in a chair and reading and just watching TV. Like mm -hmm. they're out there. If it's in the countryside, which is where I'm based right now, they're out tilling fields. They're growing fruits and vegetables. They're providing for their family in different ways. They're finding ways of being productive and they're continuing mm -hmm. things on. They're growing. They're just growing. And I think there's something to that, all of that. And it, it connects into to the, to your world or to any profession for that matter. You know, if you want to feel fulfillment and you want to keep driving things forward in different ways, you have to have that. And I think at times, like at least within Western culture, we miss out on that. We, we, we have this, this twisted sort of idea of like, well, you know. I, mean, I think Western society is very based on like external motivation, even down to if I help this old lady across the street, I get into heaven. You know, like it, it like if I work hard, I get money. If I drive this bus, I get a pension. If I, whatever, I get this. And it's very much about this sort of like seated philosophical myth of like the self-made man slash woman slash whatever, you know. And it's very based in capitalism and commercialism. And it's very much tied to what's in it for me. And self-worth, right? Identity. And self-worth. And the more you can sort of operate out of internal motivations, which is the joy of doing, not the joy of getting the, re the reward, but the joy of doing it in the first place, or the sort of like fulfillment, if not joy, that you get from doing anything, you know, which is a more Eastern philosophy, it right? And yeah. think of like Buddhism or whatever, like it's far more tied into the idea of being at peace without any reward. Yeah. Um, yeah, mastering things for yourself in a sense and understanding that that mastery is probably never going to happen, but that's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. That is the actual beauty. I, is, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person, but I have a certain amount of, you know, spiritual side of me, you know, connective energy, you know, through all living things or whatever. 
and um teaching my kids about you know they'll ask questions about like heaven and hell like does heaven exist and i'll say things like i think heaven exists right here on earth and i think hell exists right here on earth and you don't have to die to experience either one and uh good news is that you're a privileged canadian kid like you get to kind of have some say in the matter you get to choose you know and you can choose every day to be happy or you can choose every day to be miserable and you can put yourself in heaven or hell just in your head. And, and that's very real. And that doesn't apply to, you know, uh, you getting punished or rewarded for saying you believed something or, or saying that you, or you went to, you know, you went to the same building every once a week or something. Right. 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 No, that's beautifully put. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting how you kind of, again, I guess where we're at right now is kind of looking at your career here and looking back on these things. And it's nice where you can sort of like look back on it and sort of come away with these reflections. Yeah. I'm finding my, myself, like I said earlier, you know, sort of engrossed in it all and just all these different ideas <laughs> swirling around. But I mean, that's exactly where you want to be, quite frankankly, I, I, mm-hmm. at least for me, you know, I love all of this stuff and uh, I'm sure listeners will be too right now, but uh, yeah, it's, you've, you've got me thinking here, Dan. No, good. Yeah. Shifting into a different question here, and we spoke to this point a little bit about risk-taking, and you'd mentioned, you know, not pushing forward, not pushing these boundaries would be the ultimate risk. But I also understand in your own history, you know, growing up, you said yourself that you weren't the biggest risk-taker. You know, self-preservation mm-hmm. was a real thing for you. You know, you weren't that kid screaming down the hill on your BMX without a helmet, climbing the tallest oh, tree in your scary. neighborhood. That, that was not you, right? But then on Definitely. the flip side here, you know, what you've done in your career, I don't know if this was like a light, you know, the switch just went on or this is something developed or it's just contextually based where what you do and what you've really made a name for yourself is your, a lot of your songwriting, which is really exposed, you know, exposing yourself, your, your innermost thoughts and feelings. And to most, that would be the ultimate terror. And I was just kind yeah. of curious of what all of this means. I mean, is that something that was just been compartmentalized where like in this realm, the ultimate risk taker over here, not so much, or was it more of like sort of a journey where things have just sort of shifted yeah. and you've grown into who you are now and it's become easier. That's interesting. I mean, it's never been posed to me in quite that way. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid, I was like very careful. I was not the kid falling out of trees, you know, I was very careful. I didn't want to get injured and I've, I've never broken a bone, knock on wood. And, and yet as an adult, I think taking risks is completely imperative. That's, I've never really even thought about that, but um, I don't know. I think part of it is that I, I made some conscious decisions along the way or had some epiphanies along the way about what kind of life I wanted to lead. And um I knew, I knew as a kid that like I was not, destined for a desk job. Like I knew, I just had a sense that you couldn't, I I couldn't be happy in a cubicle, you know, and that I would rather be happy than rich. And, you know, so it, I think also there's, there's been a lot of times when I was rewarded for risks, taking risks. And then that makes me want to do it more. Right. That's sort of like positive Positive reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I was playing, I played a, at South by Southwest Festival in Austin, huge, massive thing. And by chance, the executive director, a guy named Brent Krolke, who's since passed, wandered into the room and he saw maybe half of my set. And I ran into him at a party later that night. And he was like, oh, great show, Dan. And I was like, you know, thank you so much for being there. And 
he said something that I just like really stuck with me. He said, you're doing all the right things. If you just keep doing what you're doing, eventually you're going to start getting paid for things that you forgot that you did. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. I mean, they, I, I think he was mostly talking about literally like getting paid money, Yeah. but right. he was also talking philosophically mm. that like, if you just keep flying, just keep going, keep moving. Eventually as the dust settles behind you, there's going to be a crowd of people who are clapping for you. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. um, I envisioned this sort of long tunnel with doorways on either side, kind of like, um, like the hallway in the shining kind of thing. Yeah. And I've got a little key in my hand. And as I walk down the hallway, I just go, I stick a key into the, every door and I unlock it. And I don't even bother opening it. I just unlock every single door. And that eventually, as I did it for long enough, that some of those doors would open from the other side and people would enter the hall and they would be there with me in the hall as I mm-hmm. kept my sort mm-hmm. of like ongoing march. And this comes down to like the same thing we were talking about before of just like persevering and not stopping and, and finding joy in the doing. And when I was young, I did a lot of grandiose things when we were performing. Like we, I would play the song Robots and I'd get the song, the whole audience to sing along and I'd stomp around and I'd crowd surf or I'd step up onto the bar top and like grab a pint glass and pour myself a beer and then like, you know, chug a beer. And it was like, I, I, every time I was in front of people, part of it, you know, youngest child attention seeker, like I just. A certain persona took over. I will. And I wanted to keep pushing the boundaries of what could feel both larger than life and also authentic. And if you can, if you can do that, if you can sort of like, like thread that needle where what you're doing feels huge and grandiose and yet totally like honest, that is lightning in a bottle. There's your heaven on earth. There's, there's heaven on earth. Absolutely. And, um, and it's very hard to do. And I've, and I've been punished for it too, where like I would get so grandiose with our shows and so over the top. And I feel like kind of like a ringleader at a circus and, and then having these moments where I wasn't internally, I wasn't really feeling it. And I was like, God, I just feel like a monkey dancing, you know? Um, and then that's not good either. So you have to, you have to sort of continually thread the needle and it's, there's no, there's no finish line. Like there's no podium, like the, the only, the only podium that you can stand on and like the award ceremony, when they put a medal around your neck, like that, you know, it's death. Like you just have, you're just always running. Yeah. You're, you're always running. And then when you cross the line, your life's over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel as though this conversation, we're threading together all these different elements. Like we're, we're speaking about one thing and some of the elements of a previous question are coming back in. And it's just too many interesting ideas there. Uh, what you're speaking about there is just like this pursuit of just fulfillment in a way, you know, self-fulfillment mm-hmm. and, and trying to, to find what that means. And it's a, a target that's always sort of shifting and moving around, but that's the beauty of it again, right? You know, personal fulfillment at all costs and existential and, and uh, make sure you get, you know, a video on TikTok this week and, you know, feed your family. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, like there's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that we didn't talk about in terms of like what goes into a day in the life of a musician. But like these days you have to be a, a, an expert in social media. You have to be uh, an expert video editor. You have to, you know, you have to know how to produce things uh, with your home studio. You need to 
be able to do online shows over Zoom. You need to be a tech expert. Like oh, I know. there's a million. You have to be a, a, a photographer. You have to be a. You have to know how to use Photoshop. And it's it's like all of those things are part of the nuance of like why some people are successful and some aren't. Is that it's uh, as as my friend Torquil Campbell from Stars so eloquently puts it. If this was easy, literally everybody would do it. You know. Yeah. Because the payoff is so great. There's the, the having people like yelling and screaming and clapping as you get off stage is like that is it's a drug. It's, it's yeah. like there's no replacement for that. And so no doubt. So all of those elements right now, you're involved with a lot of those things even still. I mean, imagine you'd have like a team oh, yeah. kind of taking care of some of them for you. Like- I mean, I have a team. I've I've got a I've got management and agents and publicists and all that, you know, but the truth is if I just stopped pushing the wheelbarrow it would you know the feet would dig into the ground and uh and it's over that's it you know it's like and and that's why like even if you hate their music you should never you should never like look down on pop stars because the amount of work and like drive and desire that is required to operate at that level where you're playing like arenas and stadiums and you know, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. It's not, it's not, see. yeah. And it's not like, it, that's not the sport that I play. I don't, I don't operate within the game of, you know, the pop star world, but like, yeah. I sure respect it because I know how hard it is, you yeah. know, and there's this idea that like playing populist accessible music is somehow easier, but it's not, it's just, it's even harder actually. It's, it's harder. Yeah. It's harder to make a hit. Than it's even more fickle, you know, using yeah. that word again, right. Shifting and changing constantly the, the the demands and wants of fans and but you still kind of gotta push a little bit you know in terms of the boundaries to, yeah it must be tough and that's why people like billy eilish or whatever are succeeding so brilliantly because they can thread all those needles they can be on the cutting edge fashion wise and they can yeah. be the pop star you want them to be and yet they're writing great songs and they're yeah. producing them at home you know and their talent it, is... the talent is enormous and mm. um so, you know, there are, there are certain people in the pop sphere that I just, am, I can't even imagine. And, and so young, like yeah. Billie Eilish being so talented, so young is just, I feel like I didn't write a great song until I was like 25 years old, you know? And yeah, my incubation period was, was like drastically long. <laughs> well, I feel as though at this point, like we've, we've touched a lot on the past and we're, we're heading towards the end here, but maybe before we close things out, we could kind of look towards the future. And again, you stated already, you know, you have some Canadian dates coming up, you have a European leg uh, and you have a six album on the way. Um, so that's your immediate future, obviously, but beyond all of that, I mean, looking towards the future, I mean, there's going to be some Johns down some pathways that you're probably expecting. There's going to be some things that you're not going to be expecting, obviously, you know, do you have certain visions sort of, looking towards all this, like you want to be here, I want to do this, I want to go there, or are you kind of just leaving up to serendipitous exploration and sort of inspiration? Yeah, I feel as driven now as I did when I was 22. I, I feel like a resurgence. I feel like post-pandemic, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it, I want more. Like I want to be able to play in the States, the size of venue that I can play in Canada. And so, you know, on like a very career pragmatic side of things, like, I just know that that's what I want. And I feel like this record is maybe the best 
record that I've ever touched and, you know, has more nuance and artistic sort of flavor than I've ever been able to access before. And that's exciting to me. So I, I feel like there's a, I'm in a new chapter. My kids are older now. I'm less in the trenches. They're, you know, they're not like little tiny kids anymore. I hear you. It frees up a bit of time. It you. does. You have a bit more time for yourself. And I'm I'm healthier than I've been basically my whole life, like physically. Like mm-hmm. I just, um, and I, I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm in a good place and mm, I'm very excited like about this next phase. And um, also I, I feel uh, unashamed to promote my music these days because I, I feel so, so truly in it. Like I have no fear of selling out because the worst case scenario is that more people hear this music that I think is really great. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, oh, that's beautifully put. Couldn't be more excited. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will be excited to, to hear all of this. When, cool. when is the, the next album going to be released? Oh, I wish I could tell you, but yeah? I can't. Okay. Okay. I was hoping for the uh, secret information. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. I felt this conversation, you know, went places that, uh, you know, I, I myself wasn't necessarily expecting, but I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, it's been such a, a riveting talk and noted a few times over, it just triggered a, a lot of different thoughts and feelings for myself. And, and I'm confident that's going to be the case for a lot of listeners too. And, uh, and I hope it was, uh, it, it was good for yeah. you in that sense, but I've, I yeah. really appreciate your time and coming on today. So thanks. Well, very kind, man. Thank you for having me and uh, pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And for those interested in learning more about Dan and his work, of course, you can check out his website. He's on all the social platforms. You can find him on all the social streaming platforms as well. Keep an eye out for his new album. Obviously, that'll be dropping soon. And also, too, we didn't get into it today, but Side Door, his other venture, you can go check that out, too. And for reference, all of that information will be included in the show links. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, it goes a long ways and it helps more than you can know. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And head on over to YouTube. I recently launched a channel over there where we have these conversations, full video conversations, in fact. But the interesting thing is we'll have some imagery associated with the actual episode. So you can kind of take it in in a, in a different way there. And if you do, you will notice the show does need a, a bit of love there. It is new for us over on YouTube. So if you like it, yeah, please subscribe. It would help a ton. And then finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.